Well, good morning and Merry Christmas on this uh, Christmas Sunday, the, the last Sunday before Christmas. It's uh, always one of, my, one of my favorites. Christmas is just, uh, well, Christmas is special anyway, isn't it? Christmas is one of those holidays. Christmas is, is one of those something for everyone kind of holidays. I, 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 Christmas Sunday, I, it's one of the few times I, I wear a suit and I, I get to wear my Christmas tie. I know some of you are thinking, Bob, the tie is a little wide. Yes, thank you, hipsters. Uh, I've been wearing ties long enough that I know if I just hold on to it, I only wear it once a year, I hold on to it long enough, ties will be this wide again. So, so, so I'm okay with that. But Christmas is fun for, for all, all, all kinds of reasons. Christmas is a unique, it's, it, it is a very theological, it is a very spiritual Christian holiday and yet, it's a holiday that's not only for Christians. It, this is a holiday that seems to have something for everyone. There's, there's, while it started being remembered only by uh, a small minority of the population anywhere, that has long since changed, hasn't it? And it, it seems almost everybody, whether, whether you're of faith in Christ or not, almost everybody has something about Christmas that they like. It it's, seems to be that holiday that has something for everyone. What are some of the things that you like? Well, some of the things you like maybe that we've missed this year. Did you enjoy the choir? No, we didn't. Did you enjoy the kids' choir, the kids' program this year? No, we didn't have that either. There's been a lot of, of, of lost things that we have lost or, or had to um, lay aside and yield and not enjoy this year. And that's happening throughout our culture. But still at this time of year, there are some special things. There are some things. Think to some of the things you love about Christmas. Maybe it's decorating the tree, right? Maybe it's one of my personal favorites. Can you guess? Christmas cookies. I heard that my daughter, far away in Zimbabwe, where it's summer at Christmas time, but they do have Christmas cookies. And she baked so many Christmas cookies. Ruth has a bit of a sweet tooth. She baked so many Christmas cookies that she didn't have, have containers to put them all in. I wanted to help with that. But they're so far away. How about family gatherings? Does your family gathering look like that? <laughs> Had a little fun with that one. Or, or maybe no family gatherings this year. Uh, go, uh, official mandates and all. But, but still, you can't crowd around together as family, but you can crowd into the mall and you can still do Christmas shopping. Men, there is still time, okay? You've got uh, at least three good days Till, till, till four, four days, really, for, for Christmas shopping still, okay? You count today, you've got five. Best sales Christmas Eve, just before the candlelight service here. So you can finish up then. Uh, as you're at the mall, maybe, maybe a visit with Mall Santa. You can still do that, although it looks a little scarier than normal. I, I, I always thought it's fun this time of year to walk into a jewelry store wearing a mask, Right? I mean, put on some dark glasses if you really want to get the attention. Um, how about opening presents? What a time of special family joy and happiness. Doesn't that picture just evoke that joyous celebration of, the, of loving, gift-giving, and greed? It just makes this holiday special. 
Maybe, maybe you're of a simpler mind. Maybe you're just dreaming of a white Christmas. Now that one's sweet. And I've been told by the forecasters that is not going to be our Christmas this year. So much we give up for this COVID. Even the snow. Who knew? Well, there's something for everyone, it seems, in Christmas. And I want to I pause and just remind you in this Advent season with each of the candles where we've been. We have grabbed hold of the angel's declaration in the fields outside of Bethlehem to those few shepherds who were, who were minding the flocks at night. And they said to them basically this, good news of great joy. For all peoples, a Savior. And, and in that, that, that good news, we first focused on Mary and the angel Gabriel's announcement to her of good news. News, in fact, that was, seemed too good to believe, too much to believe. And yet, every bit of it was true. We, we saw great joy in Mary's trusting and joyful response in that Magnificat, that song that she sings when she goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. And in this week, we move to the testimony of a man, an older man named Simeon. And in Simeon, we're going to hear the third move of that angelic announcement. Good news of great joy for all peoples, a Savior, Christmas, something for everyone? And in that, in that story of Simeon, we are jumping ahead a little bit in the story, aren't we? If you follow through, well, there is the announcement to Mary, also to Joseph. There is Mary's visit to Elizabeth. They, they travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. There, the child is born and laid in a manger, and the angels make the announcement to the shepherds who go and see. Somewhere along the, along the line there, within, within some days or weeks, the, the uh, magi come and visit. And uh, at some point, 40 days after the birth, is when they come to the temple and where our story is going to pick up this morning. So we're jumping ahead, but... There's a purpose for that, as I want to grab hold of the angel's announcement, in order that we'll conclude on Christmas Eve, good news of great joy for all people, something for everyone, a Savior. So I want to begin reading in the book of Luke, and we'll pick it up with, with Simeon there at the temple. Luke chapter 2, about, about verse 22, and there's something here that's a bit of a surprise. There's something here that is beyond that which was expected. There's something here that even for Mary and Joseph, they, they caught this and they said, What? This was more than even they expected. Those who had heard from the angel Gabriel himself, from the presence of God, there was something more to them that's in this story. See if you can pick that out as we read it. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
Now, maybe I should explain some of that before we go further. Every time that a, a, a child was born, and, and per, I, I think um, the law is simply pointing out something that was true ever since Genesis 3, and with the fall of humanity and sin entering humanity, that every child born is born in that sin of Adam, and so the, the mother in childbirth as well is made unclean and there's a purification sacrifice that is to be offered. Forty days after birth for a male child. And so that's one of the things they're, they're doing here. There's an offering of purification. But there's something else going on. And that something else is there is a, a bringing of, a, of the firstborn son and this goes all the way back to the redemption out of Egypt. That they were redeemed, and yet there was the death of the firstborn. And God set apart every firstborn as holy to him. And so when a firstborn son was born, that son was redeemed back from the Lord at a cost of five shekels. Now, I don't know how, many, how much money five shekels is today, but it seems like a, like a, a pretty good, good price to buy your boy back, right? You get to keep this child at, a, at the price of five shekels. That was a redemption. And there's something going on there, just a reminder. And yet, they don't do that here in the story. They bring the offering that's needed. And the offering that they bring tells us that they were a poor couple because they didn't bring the lamb. They brought the two turtle doves instead. But they, they, they presented the child before the Lord just like Hannah did years, centuries earlier when Samuel was born. She promised the Lord, you give me a son and I will give him back to you. Her firstborn was devoted to the Lord and rather than redeem him, she devoted him back to the Lord. And that's what Mary and Joseph are doing here. They're not redeeming Jesus. Jesus doesn't need to be redeemed. That would spoil the picture. He is the one who will redeem they present him as more than any other child other ever born. He is devoted and holy to the Lord. That's what's going on in this story so far. All right, so there they are, and they come to this temple, and the temple by this time is a mess. The temple at this time has been rebuilt, and it's fantastic and glorious in appearance, built by that apostate pagan Herod who also builds idolatrous temples to Caesar. And he has bought and paid for this temple and, and those Sadducee-affiliated uh, priests who run the temple don't even believe that which they do. They don't believe in the angels who have made the announcements of the coming Messiah. They don't believe in the resurrection from the dead by which he will accomplish our salvation. It's an empty ritual that is only cultural and for this life only, it seems. That's the temple at the time, as far as the priests are concerned. But they're still doing what God's law said to do. They're still walking according to God's word, even if it seems a bit out of date. And enters into the scene a man named Simeon. And Simeon's going to function like a true priest to God. He's going to represent God to them in giving them, as he's led by the Lord, he's going to give to them a word from God. Let's pick it up there in verse 25. There's a man in Jerusalem whose name is Simeon. Not a central part in the story, but he's got something very important to say. 
And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Truly a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Something in those words caught their attention especially. Now there's some multi-generational stuff going on that I can't help but point out because I love being God's family together at Christmas. I love being God's family together. And as we shared last week, you look at Mary and you look at Mary's song of faith. You read through what she declares in, in those words of poetry that she, she says when she goes to her, her, her relative Elizabeth and you find this is an amazing teen girl. Or she is simply a teen girl who believes God and has taken God's word and hidden it in her heart. And she's a wonderful example and encouragement to us. And she shows something of the difference a teen will make and how God will use that one that society as a whole might not be paying much attention to. You may think, who am I? What have I got to contribute? I don't know that much. Nobody really listens to me. Well, that was Mary as a young teen, like some of you. And look what God has given all of us through her. Yeah, God will use a teenager. And yet you also see young parents in this story, young parents with a child devoting, committing their child to the Lord and his purposes. Have you done that as parents? Have you you said as parents, God, I hold this child in open hands. Lord, let your will be done for this child, not mine. Father, guide us and give us wisdom in how we raise our kids as a family devoted to you. There is also something of the godly grandparent role in this story, isn't there? That's where you see Simeon in a few minutes. You would see Anna come into the story as well. These elderly people that that wander into the story. And some of you, when you hear those words, you're wondering if they even know where they are. Well, yes, they do. He's led by the Spirit here. Come on. And Simeon comes in, and he has something to say that that stands out, that causes the young couple, Mary and Joseph, to marvel. Something that those who heard from God's angel, Gabriel himself, something they did not realize, at least not to that extent. And that's what's contributed by the older man of faith in the story. And so it may seem that the best years of your strength have passed and time has gotten away from you and it doesn't seem like there's much time left and yet. Simeon gives you an example. Anna gives you an example of that grandfatherly, grandmotherly input that you can have in your own family and in God's family. 
And all that's just extra. It's not really part of the message today. So I need to get on to what it is that Simeon says that so grabs hold of their attention. Simeon's words, his statement, his saying, or his song is the third of one of joyful response and worship and praise of what it is that God has done. So we get something out of what has God done here from Simeon. Previously, we saw that Mary believes what God has said is what God will do. That's Mary's confidence. That's Mary's faith. She believes that what God has said is what God will do. Simeon comes along, and now he sees what God has said. That what God has said is what he now sees by faith because he believes God. So, in seeing Jesus, Simeon has seen God's salvation. Look at his words again, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant, me, Simeon, depart in peace according to your word. Well, he had been told, he'd been promised that he wouldn't see death until he saw the Lord's Messiah. And when he says, depart in peace, he's echoing words that were said, said to Abraham years ago, that Abraham, all this stuff's going to happen to your descendants. In fact, they're going to go into slavery. But you, Abraham, shall depart in peace. Simeon's saying, I'm ready now, Lord. You can take me at any time. I, Lord, have nothing to fear in death itself because my eyes have seen. Now I'm ready to depart in peace. There's no fear of dying here with Simeon in his old age. Fear of dying. I was talking to, to some folks in between the services after the first service. We were talking about some of the stuff that's just going on in our society and our culture about COVID. It's a scary thing. There is this unseen, unexpected, it seems like at time, death is just hanging out there and could slip into your airways at any moment. There's, there's, and, and, and different ones of us have different reactions to that, different, different feelings or concerns about that, but in our society as a whole, that's, that's, that's circulating out there just like the virus, the fear of the virus. So where does it come from? Part of it comes from this. In fear of death, people are subject to bondage all their lives. How can I keep control of my life? How can I keep and preserve that which I am unable to keep and preserve and guard and protect? In this weak mortality, I cannot. And yet we fear death. But not Simeon. Simeon says, I can depart in peace. I'm ready to go. I'm not afraid of Romans. I'm not afraid of COVID because he believes what God has said. Not only in faith can you depart in peace, but in faith he can depart out of that temple in peace. He can go into the world in peace. That was a line you've heard me use. One of the places we get it is from right here. Now we can go into the world in peace because as Micah 5 says, this one is our peace. Paul picks that up in Ephesians 2. He says, you who are far off, you are separated from God. You are without hope and without God in the world. And yet in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been made near. By the blood of Christ, his death for us, and he is our, what? 
our peace. Yes, he is. He is our peace. There are many things. Because we have peace with God, we can have the peace of God concerning our own circumstances, and we can have peace with one another. We can forgive one another of wrongs done, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. There's a lot of things that divide people today. There's a lot of things that, that pull us apart, that separate and put us into one camp or another, and the divide in between seems to be getting wider and wider. Those things are, are, are things like politics, things like what we're afraid of, like a virus and COVID, and what reaction do we have to it? How, much care, how many of you are experiencing in your own families difference, sharp differences in how you react to the things around the virus and how that pulls you apart and creates tension where it doesn't need to be? Fears, racism, injustices. These are things that divide us and separate us apart, and yet Jesus gives us peace with others because we have peace with God. When you go forth from here this morning, you can depart in peace. You can go into the world in peace knowing that you have nothing to fear because look what God has done for you. If God would give his own son for us, the scripture says, would he not in Jesus give us all things? What have I got to be afraid of? Going into the world in peace. The source of Simeon's peace is, I can depart in peace according to your word. What God has said is what God has done. I have seen God, the fulfillment of God's scriptures. I hold him in my hands. God has spoken personally to Simeon through the promise of his scriptures. And even today, you and I have the privilege through these same scriptures, through the same prophecies of old and the fulfillment of it in the gospels, the implications of it in the New Testament letters, God by his spirit would speak directly to you through his word, even this morning, especially at Christmas. And God says again, look what I've done for you. Look what I've done for your peace. The spirit speaks to us from his word, words of good news, of great joy, which is not just for me or you or you, it's for all who would believe it. What is it that Simeon believes? Simeon believes that my eyes, in verse 30, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. My eyes have seen your salvation, that which you have prepared in the presence of all people. God has set his salvation out, and he's done it in the presence of everybody. Oftentimes we think about, well, this whole salvation thing doesn't seem fair. It's like, you know, God has this thing, but you got to be in the in crowd to know about it and hear about it for you to participate in God's salvation. Do you realize that God has, God has been working this, this plan and this purpose in ways that it, is, it has been made aware of worldwide? Think back to, well, first of all, when he first begun and made his first promise, everybody on earth heard it. Oh, that was Adam and Eve. And that her descendant would one day crush the serpent's head. There is the first promise of the Christ coming. And they could tell every one of their descendants after them. It would, they, they would hear it from there. Certainly the invitation, the word went out for a hundred years through Noah. 
After Noah, Abraham comes along and God moves him. God moves him from one, from one center of culture to a new place. And you think about those Canaanites in the land of what we know as Israel today. And those Canaanites who lived there when Abraham came along, they got, do you realize, we, we, we think about Israel comes in and is supposed to push the Canaanites out and God is done with them and God is judging those peoples. And yet, didn't God warn them through Abraham for 400 years before their time was up? Now we go to Egypt and, and Abraham's descendants go down to Egypt, and there God shows the purposes of what he's doing and how he's working, how he is sovereignly working his salvation, his rescue, his redemption of his people. He's redeeming them out of Egypt, and Egypt isn't just one place where they happen to be. Egypt is the power of the world at that time. And yet God shows Pharaoh Amenhotep II, God shows his power through that series of ten plagues, so that 40 years later, when the Israelites finally make it around to Jericho after wandering in the desert for 40 years, the people of Jericho have long heard. They are terrified, not because there's all these Israelites. The Israelites don't really scare them. They've got a massive wall. What scares them is they've heard of Israel's God, and they've already heard of what their God can do and how he rescues, how he works his salvation in the presence of all peoples. So from Jericho and Hazor and other places in Israel, go all the way ahead. Let's move the calendar forward a little bit to Jonah and Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't even want to go. But God wants to go and even tell Nineveh ahead of time, warning a hundred years or more before God's accountability is going to come to Nineveh and Assyria. God warns them and calls them out and tells them of a pending judgment, but also his grace available to them. Later on, those people, led by a king named Sennacherib, are going to experience again firsthand. Sennacherib, then the leading power in all the world, is going to experience the working of God's sovereign salvation when 186,000 of his own soldiers surrounding Jerusalem wake up dead one morning. And God's hand has been at work. It's not only Sennacherib and the Assyrians, it's Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Again, the, the empire of the world in that day. And yet God takes this proudest of kings, Nebuchadnezzar, who would say, is this not great Babylon that I, I have built? And God humbles him. And he bows his knee to the Most High God who rules over the kingdoms of men. Following Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylon, there is Persia, and there is Cyrus. And we could go on and on, but Cyrus is the one, the king of all the world, who decrees that the Israelites must go back to Jerusalem and build those te their temple. Why? So that they in their temple would pray to their God for him. Yeah, it cannot be said that the world has not heard that the world has not known, that through history, out in the open, God has not been hiding his redemption and his saving purposes. You see, we hide from God, but God has not hidden himself from us. God has been very out in the open with what he has done. And what is true for God's purposes in salvation is true for what he has done. Consider Israel in the first century. It is the crossroads of the world. 
One of the problems that Israel had as a people through their history, it's called the land between. It's between Egypt and Africa and Europe and Asia. You want to go anywhere and conquer somebody, no matter where you start from, in, that, in the ancient world, you went through Israel. What a nice piece of real estate for God to give to his people, right? Except for he is going to, as people traipse back and forth through their backyards and front yards and front doors, that God is going to use them to show himself to the nations. Even when we come to Rome in our story. Rome is the new bully on the block. Rome is the new kingdom of the world. All the world, the known world at that time is ruled by Rome. And Rome is probably the the powerful oppressor that Mary refers to in anticipating God's deliverance. And yet it will not be long, a few hundred years, and even the emperor of Rome will bow the knee to Christ. It's amazing. This initial band of Jesus' followers will somehow turn the world upside down. We often think this is something done in a corner, done out of the way, and feel marginalized. But God has done this out in the open in front of everybody because it is for everybody. You see, God's salvation is intended to be, in verse 32, a light of revelation to the nations and for glory to your people, Israel. Let's, let's take that second phrase first. That's the easy one. That God is going to do everything that he promised for Israel. And I don't mean in that, that national country gathered, regathered in the land today, but gathered in unbelief, relying on themselves and relying on their, their friendships and their international relationships for their security rather than relying upon their God. By and large, Israel today is gathered in unbelief, not belief. There remains a believing remnant in Israel, in the land and out of the land. But God will restore. There will be a time when Israel will look on him whom they pierced. And they will mourn, as one mourns, Zechariah says, for an only son. The day is coming when the Son of God will return and will step his foot on the Mount of Olives, and he will rescue Israel nationally from the terrors that are happening on the world stage at that time, and he will restore to them all that they have lost, and he will make them in his glorious kingdom far more than they ever imagined they could be. And all of the rest of the world will be blessed in Messiah's rule. Call it trickle-down grace through Israel to all the world in that day. That day is coming. Oh, yes, glory to Israel is part of God's purpose and plan. And yet, it's not enough. Isaiah 49 says it this way, that not only Israel but Messiah will be a light unto the nations. Isaiah 49 describes it this way in verse 5. The Lord says... And this is Messiah himself speaking. Or, or, or Isaiah is putting himself in, in as he's speaking what the Messiah will say. Now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel would be gathered to him. He's going to do that. But verse 6 he says, 
But it is too light a thing. It's too little a thing. It's not enough that my servant, my Messiah, should raise up the tribes of Jacob, Israel, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's where you and I come in, isn't it? That's, why, that's what Paul, when he has left Judea and Samaria and he started the move of the gospel to the ends of the earth and he says in Antioch, for the Lord so commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the nations that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now if the gospel starts in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, from there, the ends of the earth are somewhere near here. I like to joke it's probably the Oregon coast. What's the end of the earth, both in distance from Jerusalem, but also the land ends, the earth ends, and the water starts, right? And it's a whole lot of water. Okay. So, so the gospel getting all the way to you and I is a literal fulfillment of what Jesus said of what Paul says, of what Simeon said. In fact, did you catch what is true of Messiah? That through him, salvation would come to the ends of the earth. Paul picks that up and says, his mission is our mandate. If it is Messiah's purpose that his salvation go to the end of the earth, then we as his church are the ones to carry it there. We are the ones to extend his salvation farther than anybody expected it should go. That's the point. God's salvation, God's rescue, God's grace, God's peace extends further than you and I or Mary and Joseph expect. And that's a good thing because we all need that. We need God's grace to reach deeper than we first thought. It needs to go deeper into my own life and heart than I realize. It's not just the big things that I would acknowledge that in the past I did. It's the daily failures still. I remember as a child reciting a liturgy that said, we have sinned against you in what we have done and in what we have left undone. And that's still true for Bob. It's probably still true for you. Aren't you glad that the grace of God in Jesus your Savior reaches even there? It goes that far. We need it to go farther than we first realized and expected. And it goes farther than we would expect to people around us. People who would mock and ridicule your faith in Jesus, the gospel of Christ can even reach to them. I know because I used to be one of those. And yet God, one day, somehow, opened my rebellious eyes and showed me himself. And the grace of God in Jesus my Savior reached even to me. I'm not sure where you're at today. Well, some of you are here in the room. Some of you are online. I have no idea where you're at. But I don't know where you're at in terms of faith in Christ for sure. Well, many of you I do. We've been together in Christ's family for some time now. But for some of you, and it may be the time when you're here that this is the time 
that this is the year. This is the year that, that, that Christmas has something not merely for everyone, but something for you. You see, the thing that marveled Mary and Joseph was this, that God's salvation reached further than they expected. God's salvation was not only for the glory of Israel, but God's salvation was a light for the nations, was for everyone, even for you and I. Joseph knew from the angel's word that Mary was with child by the Holy Spirit and she would bear a son and he should call his name Jesus, Yahweh is salvation, because he would save his people, Israel, from their sin. Mary's words were, uh, in her song, uh, uh, spoke of God her Savior and of God helping his servant Israel. Israel is probably in her song, in her mind, Israel is the lowly whom God will lift. And the Romans were probably the rich and proud rulers that God is going to set aside. That would have most likely been Mary's framework at that time. And yet the gospel reached much further than that. Do you remember the Roman centurion in the midst of Christ's ministry, who came to him and, and pleaded that he would, he would save, that he would heal this Roman centurion's servant. And he's on his way to the centurion's house, and the centurion's house is probably a place of, of pagan idols. And the centurion tells him, you know, you don't even need to come to my house. I know what it is to be under authority. I understand your authority. All you have to do is say the word from here, and he will be healed. And Jesus said, look at this man's faith. I haven't seen anything like this in all of Israel. That's a Roman centurion, a man of great authority. Think of the centurion in charge with the execution detail. He's seen many people die. And he's there at the crucifixion, where in the midst of the three hours of darkness, Jesus calls out in a loud, clear, triumphant shout, it is finished. And he breathed his last, and he gave up his spirit, and he dies. And what does that Roman official, that centurion, hardened army man say? Surely. This is the Son of God. Yeah, even Romans, whom many in Mary and Joseph's generation were waiting for God to sweep aside. And what does God do? God brings them in. And it's exactly what he did with me too. And it's exactly what he'll do with every one of you who would say, yes, God, I believe you. I believe you concerning Jesus, your son, my Savior. That's what Mary and Joseph marvel at. You and I, as we rightly understand it, we ought to marvel and say the gospel of Jesus, the grace of God in Jesus, his son, reaches even me. That God so loved the world that he gave his son for me and for somebody else you know, that you would marvel, could it even be for them too? And the answer is, yeah. Yeah, it could. And This could be the year. This could be the time for them to echo Simeon's words, now I can depart in peace, for my eyes have seen by faith your salvation as spoken in your word.
Christmas. I started out saying Christmas has something for everyone. No, not really. Christmas has one thing for everyone, and that is salvation in God's Son. There is one Savior. There is one name, no other, given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved, God's Word says. But He has given His Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but would have peace everlasting life. You know, there is no distinction. There, those divisions that I talked about earlier, so much that splits us apart, whether it's on ethnic and racial lines, whether it's on gender, male and female, and so on, whether it's, whether it's economic, whether it's education or culture, the Scripture says that there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's male nor female. There's slave nor free. There's neither cultured nor barbarian, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And Paul, in saying that, is saying the door is wide open. In Christ, for whosoever will believe God concerning his Son has his life has his peace. One thing, Jesus, for everyone. We sing the song at Christmas time. O come all ye faithful. I love that song. And yet, what if there were another song? What if there were a song, Come all you unfaithful? Could there be such a, th- a song? Could there be a song that would welcome in God's embrace those who have not been faithful but are willing to believe that, God, you sent your Son into broken humanity for me? Well, that's a song we're going to get to sing. Not just one day, but on Christmas Sunday. And I hope as we close and and go to this song that this is your song. That there's one thing in Christmas, and that is God's Son, Jesus, for everyone, for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son. Lord, we thank you for this time of year when we are reminded. We thank you, Lord, for this time of year when others are perhaps confronted with this thing thing called Christmas and with some things in it they like, which sets before us an opportunity. Oh, God, help us to use it, realizing that your Son is for everyone, anyone who would believe. Father, would you use us, like Paul described, would you use us in the mission of your Son that we would be light, even this week, to people around us, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers. Lord, you set the appointment and give us the courage and the faithfulness for it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.